This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. School lunch in the United States has been a subject of debate for years and has been rife with legislation and rollbacks and revenue trumping nutrition. Of course, like everything else in 2020, COVID has made everything more complicated. Today on the show, we're talking about COVID's impact on school lunch, new proposed changes that could be implemented, how these changes may affect our kids' health, and what you can do about it. My guest today is Colin Schwartz. Colin is the Deputy Director of Legislative Affairs at the Center for Science in the Public Interest, and he works on nutrition policy and advocacy. Before he joined CSPI, he served as Director of Government Affairs at the Physicians Committee, as Policy and Communications Manager for the American Association of People with Disabilities, and as Manager of Viral Hepatitis Policy and Legislative Affairs at the National Alliance of State and Territorial AIDS Directors. Colin has undergraduate degrees in psychology and cognitive science at the University of California, San Diego, and a master in public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Well, Colin, it's so good to welcome you to the Food Issues podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I want to start today by talking about what's been happening with school lunch. So I know that in October, the USDA extended child nutrition waivers to provide free meals to all children through the end of the 2020-21 school year, filling a vital need for many children who already received free and reduced lunch, families who are now facing food insecurity, and or those who are, are having financial difficulties. So, but tell me a little bit more about what is problematic about the nutritional quality of those meals. So it's terrific that the Trump administration actually had allowed schools to provide school breakfast and school lunch for all kids at no cost. And that's something that folks in the uh, school advocacy world have been asking for for years because this eliminates stigma and shame from kids who rely on free meals, who come from low-income families. And so many families, so many working families have been hit hard by the COVID pandemic with the economic downturn. Actually, a lot of families have lost income, and so they qualify for the school meals program. So this has been a, a huge win, and we need to continue that. And for about 30 million kids, and potentially even more now because of the rise in food insecurity, These are the only meals that they get in a day. So the breakfast and lunch that's given to them at school, whether now virtually, if it's being delivered and they have to go pick it up, or if they're going to school in person and getting the meals there, those are the only meals they're getting in in the day. And so we have to make sure those meals are healthy. And so it's great that we have, at least until the end of this school year, universal meals, but we have to make sure that schools are making those meals as nutritious and healthy as possible. And so that's where we have a number of concerns. Okay. Why don't you go ahead and tell me what some of those concerns are? So schools have been working to lower salt, have more whole grains, more fruits and vegetables, lower fats, more appropriate uh, age appropriate um, calorie ranges. So Schools have made a lot of good progress on nutrition standards for school meals, but because of COVID, there were supply chain disruptions, and so a lot of schools weren't able to procure the same foods as before. Also, because of attacks from the Trump administration, there were a number of rollbacks in weakening those nutrition standards to make sure that school meals are healthy. And so where we're at today is we have in place more or less good standards, although they should be stronger but a lot of schools aren't meeting them for a variety of reasons. Say their local fruit or vegetable producer who works down the street or in the neighborhood over was having issues with their produce because of COVID. And so now they're not getting that food anymore. And so now they're potentially not actually providing kids fruits or vegetables or same with whole grains. Maybe they're not providing the kids the same amount of whole grains. And So it's a supply chain issue that we need to resolve. And I think more and more of it is being resolved the longer that COVID actually goes on. 
but there have also been attacks, attacks on the standards, weakening the standards. And so because the Trump administration, for instance, actually stopped the goal, the sodium reduction goals in schools, um, there, there were uh, schools were on target to reduce the amount of salt in school meals over 10 years. And the Trump administration basically weakened that so that their schools are never actually going to reduce the amount of salt that they need to, to get to safe levels. And kids actually consume way too much salt. And salt is actually bad for your health, even for a kid. It sets you up for elevated blood pressure, which sets you up for higher blood pressure and heart disease and stroke later in life. So they rolled back salt standards. They rolled back whole grain standards. So kids aren't getting as many whole grains. They're getting more refined grains. That's bad for their health. And same with flavored milk. So there was a limit on how much, for instance, flavored chocolate milk, like uh, low-fat chocolate milk, low-fat vanilla milk that you can serve in schools, and now that's been lifted. And so kids now are getting more salt, less whole grains, and more sugary milk. And that's all bad for their health. And so schools have um, dual issues with needing to find the right foods and then also needing to actually meet stronger nutrition standards that's good for kids' health. Right. And so you talked about the supply chain issues. And I know that the USDA also implemented the meal pattern waiver, which allowed certain schools to serve meals that don't meet those nutritional standards. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? And do you know the percentage of schools of districts taking advantage of that? It's sort of a black box. We don't actually know how many schools are taking advantage of the waivers to not have to meet the nutrition standards, but we imagine that it's quite a lot, if not the majority, because especially in the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of states were just allowing schools to opt into these waivers. And we don't also know exactly to what extent the waivers are being used for. So is it that fruit or vegetable issue, or is it more to just serve foods in bulk? Because the waivers can also be used for bundling food. So you have to imagine now because of COVID, kids might not be getting that individual milk carton with the breakfast and lunch each day. Instead, it might be they need food for the whole week. And so it's really helpful for a school to then just give the family a gallon of milk instead of, you know, 10, 15 individual eight ounce cartons of milk. So uh, some of those waivers could be used more appropriately, for instance, like bundling the food, but then others could be used for not having to meet the nutrition standards. And we just don't know. And one thing that actually the Trump administration did is they, they waived a requirement from Congress that required schools have to demonstrate hardship and procurement and getting the waivers. Right. So, for, so, you know, schools had to say like, oh, I can't buy my whole grain, um, my whole grain tortilla or my whole grain bread from this vendor. And so I'm going to have to document, okay, can't buy it from this vendor. So give me a waiver so I don't have to meet the whole grain standard. And that's in theory how it was supposed to work out. But the Trump administration stopped that. And so the Biden administration were hopeful that they'll restore that requirement. So we want to support schools. So by all means, if a school is having issues and buying those fruits and vegetables, get a waiver because then they obviously can't meet the fruit and vegetable standard. But we don't want a scenario where schools are just waving out of the standards if they don't have a good reason to. Okay. And in terms of reimbursement, traditionally the National School Lunch Program, they would be reimbursed for school meals. Now, is that affecting what's being served? Are our districts still required to serve fruits and vegetables? It's a good question. So yes, districts are still required. Schools are still required to they'll still get the reimbursement that they're supposed to get. So even if they get these waivers, technically they're actually still getting the reimbursement for meeting the fruit and vegetable and other nutrition standards. So if they waive from some of these, they're still going to get that money. And of course we need more money for schools. Reimbursement's been helped. Like there's been an increase in reimbursement. Um, And I think also with universal meals too, that will help a lot of schools because more kids that are actually getting the meal. And so then more schools are then reimbursed for more meals and that can help as well. And Congress also passed a package to fund schools for any deficit spending that they had during the beginning of the pandemic. So in the early days of the pandemic, 
schools were hemorrhaging money left and right to make the meals and deliver them to families. And they had a reduction in kids participating in the school meal program because kids weren't going to school or there were school closures and they didn't know how many kids were participating. So there's been help with financial relief from Congress there too. So schools still get the reimbursement, whether or not they're not meeting the nutrition standards through the waivers. Um, if we, you know, after the COVID pandemic or say before the COVID pandemic, before these waivers, if schools obviously weren't meeting the stronger nutrition standards, then they weren't getting an increased reimbursement. And eventually I think we'll go back to that. So, you know, when life returns to normal, quote unquote normal one day, then, and you know, there aren't supply chain disruptions, then there's an incentive for schools to meet the stronger standards by having an increase of seven cents per meal that they get. And if they don't meet those stronger nutrition standards, they don't get that additional seven cents per meal. Okay. Can you talk about something that I think is often not talked about because we bucket it all into school lunch is breakfast. Uh, you know, we talked before about sodium levels and lack of whole grains, but in breakfast in particularly, I find that they're, they're so high in sugar. Breakfast in particular is very sugary and the school meals for breakfast and lunch, they have all these standards. There's, you know, the sodium standard, the whole grain standard. There isn't a sugar standard for school meals. So one thing that we want the Biden administration to do is to also set a standard for added sugars. And I know this can be kind of confusing for folks, but, um, you know, added sugars are just the sugars that are added to food that's not naturally occurring in food. Um, and so in school breakfast in particular, you still have a lot of flavored milks. So flavored milk actually is one of is the biggest culprit. Um, but you still have baked goods, bakeries, you know, sweetened breads. Like you'll have cookies that are breakfast cookies or frookies, which are like fruit cookies that are still served, fortified donuts. And then you have your pancakes and waffles and um, covered in or already flavored with like maple syrup. So very, very sugary foods. Um, sweetened cereal, of course, that's a big one. A lot of kids still have, you know, just sweetened cereal for breakfast with their flavored milk, um, you know, in the cereal bowl. And that right there could actually exceed a child's day's worth of what's safe for consuming added sugars. Uh, so the next sort of step for school meals is to set a standard so that we do limit those really sugary foods. And breakfast is worse than lunch, but lunch also has some pretty bad um, sugary meals. Absolutely. And then in, that's in addition to what they're eating outside of school. So, you know, so many studies show that even babies, toddlers, kids are getting way more sugar, added sugars during the day than they should. Absolutely. And, you know, an increase in added sugar obviously is linked to increased weight gain and then all sorts of diet related disease that um, that adults get, um, although kids can also get it, too. But, um, you know, you see a rise in diabetes and, and cancer or heart disease Um a lot of this is linked to weight gain, and that weight gain is linked to consuming way too much added sugar in the diet. So it's it's very important that school meals, you know, we've done such, again, a tremendous job. And, you know, when you look at school breakfast, there's still a lot of sugary items in there, but we have come a long way from, say, 10 years ago. But we still have work to do to make it, it within the safe levels of, of, of added sugar. And you bring up a good point. You're competing with all of the food that kids eat outside of school or all of the foods that they can eat at school that aren't part of the meal program. So you still have, you know, we got full calorie soda out of schools, but there's still a lot of other sugary drinks like Gatorades that are in schools. And you have foods that like snacks that are in the vending machines or on the a la carte lines and cafeterias like the chips, um, but also granola bars. So really sugary foods that kids could pick up and eat in addition to, or sometimes in place of the meal. And so that's why it's so important to have a balanced breakfast and a balanced lunch that meet all these nutrition standards. And I think you can do it in a way that also is still tasty to kids and is still um, doesn't break the bank for, for schools' budgets. Absolutely. So what I found interesting at the beginning of the pandemic when, when kids returned to school, particularly my own children returning to full in-person model, um, was that you know, in many school districts like theirs, school was being delivered to them. And I know there's various ways where kids are accessing school lunch. But if 
they aren't eating in the cafeteria where it's often chaotic, um, it's quick. Do you think that because if kids are eating lunch in their classrooms, do you think they're more likely to eat that lunch? And if so, what will the effect be on childhood obesity rates, nutritional deficiencies, other chronic diseases? It hasn't been something that we have good evidence for. So it's, it's unclear, are kids eating the meals more so now than before? Because we really have moved from a go into the cafeteria and pick what you want to eat to a, this is the food now being delivered to you. Um, so like you're in the classroom and the food is being brought to you, maybe you could pick like one out of two different options for breakfast or lunch if there's like a grab and go cart that's being wheeled around the school. But for the most part, because of COVID, if they're not eating in the cafeteria and maybe now some kids are still eating in the cafeteria, but they have like staggered times for who can eat in the cafeteria and they are six feet apart. So if the food is in the classroom, you know, are they eating it? I imagine they, they are. Uh, if it's being delivered to them to the home, you don't really know if they're going to eat it or not. You're just dropping off the food or if, you're, if they're coming to a pickup site. So all that you know is really that you gave that food to them. <clears throat> so um, so we, we don't we don't know if there's been like a reduction in food waste, for instance, because kids are now just sort of they're in, they're in the classroom, so they're just going to eat the food. But it's also unclear with the, all the waivers that schools haven't had to meet the stronger nutrition standards if the meals that they got this past school year were less nutritious. And so does that make kids, uh, you know, will that impact their health? And it's only for one school year. Uh, so probably in the grand scheme of things, it won't. Um, but the bigger issue is these regulatory rollbacks and these attacks on the nutrition standards, because, you know, if you weaken the standard, then that standard is weakened permanently. You have to fix it. The Biden administration has to fix it or Congress has to fix it. So COVID might be sort of a, a blip on the radar in comparison to really like weakening the standards that would impact school, school meals in the long term. And, you know, research actually shows that these stronger nutrition standards that were implemented almost a decade ago started to be implemented almost a decade ago. And so you have kids who have gone through the entire school with these better standards that actually shows there's a reduction in childhood obesity and amount and a, um, an incredible amount of, of healthcare costs, uh, savings, savings and healthcare costs. And, and even also a reduction in the risk of becoming um, in childhood obesity for kids who live in extreme poverty or, or very high poverty. So the standards that, and the standards also show that it's health level to playing field and access to healthy food. So for kids who go to like lower income or lower resource schools, they actually have about the same amount of access to healthy food compared to kids who go to higher resource or wealthier, richer schools. So that's been a huge, huge win for, you know, no matter where you go in any school across the country, you're going to get relatively the same amount of access to healthy food. So that's really what's at risk with undermining these nutrition standards is we could be putting kids at greater risk of childhood obesity and we could go back to where we were not too long ago where if you were lower income or went to a school in a higher poverty area, you had less access to healthy food. Right. And then also add to that, kids are spending more time at home, whether they're on distance learning, hybrid or full in person, and there's less sports, there's less activities, there's more time spent on devices, right? Absolutely. Kids aren't getting the amount of activity, physical activity that they need to get. And so healthy eating is even more important. And then I think also COVID has really uh, um, highlighted how much diet-related disease there is in this country, that two-thirds of, Amer of Americans are overweight or obese. A number of us have type 2 diabetes or cancer or heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, you name it. All of those diseases are preventable and, um, and are related to the diet for the most part. So. This is why it's so important that we have healthy eating for kids at a young age. We protect their health. We instill healthy eating habits for them. We change the food environment so it's also easier to eat better. And we hope that that also lasts 
um, into their you know teenage and adulthood years so that they're just healthier in the long run. Absolutely. And so because of the weakening of the nutritional standards in school lunch, do you think that this will have a long-term impact on the choices that kids make, the food choices kids make outside of the classroom? I don't know if, so anecdotally, we know of all kinds of wonderful stories of kids being introduced to foods they've never been introduced before in the home, new fruits or new vegetables that they tried at school, and now they're asking their parents or guardians to buy it at the grocery store. And so we know that actually what kids eat at school actually impacts what they want to eat outside the home. And if you are doing a pretty good job, which a lot of schools do, you make sure the food's appetizing. So then they want to know, like, well, can we make this recipe? Can we shop for this next time? So that's been terrific to see. I think, you know, longer term, if the standards are weakened, then you won't have kids asking for these healthier foods when they go home. They won't be introduced to the same kinds of foods as before, the, you know, better fruits and vegetables, for instance, or or whole grains. And some of these things are also kids don't really know the changes. If you reduce salt just by a little bit over time, then people actually can't distinguish the difference in their palate. And so if you do that for all food, then things pretty much taste the same. It only becomes a problem if things if remain really salty that you're comparing it to, or if you drastically reduce the salt too quickly. Same with whole grains. You can add you can make things whole grain rich, make it like 51% whole grain, 49% refined. So you have like whole grain rich bread, pasta, tortillas, um, you know, the uh, um, the burger bun or the hot dog bun even can be whole grain rich and the kids won't even know the difference. So some of these things also like they don't even need to be asking for, they'll just be accustomed to. And again, if you look at the kids who went through school all these you know past 10 years they've only known whole grain rich or right. or lower salt or more fruits and vegetables that there's a fruit and a vegetable with every meal so that they know like oh lunch comes with a fruit and vegetable breakfast comes with a fruit or vegetable so that that changes their habits when they think of like what a meal is so that for dinner they have a fruit or vegetable right and on the flip side but they're also seeing hey, lunch comes with chocolate milk or strawberry milk and breakfast is a sugary muffin with juice and graham crackers, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's right too, yep. And then, yeah. you know, there's also, you know, kids don't only exist, like they, they don't only eat at school. So you're dealing with, um, you know, when they're outside of the school for dinner or on the weekends, obviously they're, uh, you know, competing with unhealthier food because the, for instance, even the sweetened cereal, which is far too sugary for the school meals program. So say they get, um, you know, sweetened cereal for breakfast, but then like on the weekends, they could probably be, you know, consuming that same cereal, but they'll consume more of it, or there might even be versions of that cereal that's more sugary. And so there's that marketing to kids as well, that they have the foods in school are also the same foods they could buy at the grocery store. Um, and eat at home or on the weekends. And so there is that it can be tough because a lot of what these food manufacturers are doing is they want to be in both places. Um, kids are a captive audience for them. So they want to make sure that their food is in the school, that the kids know what their food is, and so that they also have their parents buy that food outside of the school. But the problem is, is that the food in the school is actually healthier. It might have lower sugar or lower salt than the variety that you would buy at the grocery store. Um, so, great point. so there is, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, you know, parents, guardians, families need to also be, um, be looking at like what, how much sugar, how much salts, how much whole grains are, are in the foods that might be in the school, but that they're buying in the grocery store to make sure that they're also, um, you know, healthy for their, for their kid. Absolutely. It's a great point. So competitive foods is something that you spoke about. And in our school district in Bethel, Connecticut, myself and a group of moms came together a few years ago and established a committee and went into uh, the superintendent of schools and the director of, um, of school nutrition and 
uh, try to advocate for many things, um, but our primary goal at, at the beginning was to get rid of the competitive foods and what the school district calls snack. So snack was after 10 minutes of picking up your lunch in the cafeteria, this was pre-COVID, then they, the kids would, at starting at uh, grade one, would be able to go up and buy cookies and chips and what is called ice cream, although it's not real ice cream. Um, and so um, we weren't extremely successful. We were able to get them to put into, uh, implement a pilot for six weeks to have fresh fruits and vegetables only isolated on one day and, and see what happened. Um, and of course, now COVID has changed all of this and we're, we're no longer a priority. We hope to one day um, go back in and advocate for healthier school lunch and get rid of those competitive foods. But competitive foods are a huge money driver. Um, and so the USDA is also proposing that certain entree items in 2021 be sold as a la carte. So do you think that competitive foods will return and how will the proposed rule affect our kids' health? I'm very concerned about this rule and I am hopeful that the Biden administration changes it, fixes it, stops it, or that Congress also gets involved. It might not seem like a big deal to a lot of folks, but it's actually an extremely big deal. So what's being proposed is, is your those competitive foods that you talked about, the cookies and chips, that um, it actually might not be so much the chips, but it's so French fries, pizza, burgers, cookies, things that you would see as part of the reimbursable meal for, say, lunch. You know, like a school will have, you know, burgers with, with fries uh, on the menu. And what a school could do then is take that burger, take those fries and serve it a la carte. So not as part of the reimbursable meal. But they and they can already do that. But what this rule would do is allow them to serve it for an additional day, and it's just one day. But actually, in reality, what that means is a school could technically be serving things like cookies and fries Monday through Friday, and that's why um, there have been limits on that uh, before. Because uh, most likely, a lot of kids are going to pick those fries and cookies in place of the reimbursable lunch. Right. And, so that's going to be a huge, it's a huge, huge issue that could totally impact the progress that we've made to make sure that kids are eating healthier food at school. And also the, not to be super confusing, but those competitive foods, they have a separate nutrition, separate standards that they have to meet as the reimbursable meal. And the separate standards for competitive foods are pretty strong. But the thing is, is that if you take a burger or a cookie from the reimbursable meal from, say, lunch, and you move that to being a a la carte or a competitive food, that individual item had to meet the meal standards, not the competitive food standards, even though now it's a competitive food. And how the meal standards work is actually an average over the course of a week. So the salt, um, for instance, or the calories, that's standards that the school has to meet over Monday through Friday. So some cookies could be more caloric or some burgers more caloric or saltier than other items that would balance it out later on in the school week. But instead, you're just taking that saltier, more caloric item and you're putting it all the cart. And so now you have actually an even more unhealthy snack item that the kid would have had um, that's going to be in place of the, the reimbursable meal. So it's it's a really big loophole. And I'm really hopeful that the Biden administration will will close the loophole. And actually, we don't want to just not even allow that additional day. I think that there really shouldn't be an exemption for these meal items that if you take a burger or French fries off the tray and put it a la carte, then it should meet the a la carte or the competitive food nutrition standards now that it's a snack um, or or like a individual entree um, rather than um meeting the meal standards. Right, right. And what is the reasoning behind all of these loopholes? What, what is the goal? Well, that loophole was to help schools with their bottom line so that if they had leftovers, so say you're a school and you want to make, you know, Wednesday is your burger with cookies and fries day, um, although it would also have to have a, you know, a fruit 
um, or a vegetable along with, along with that. Um, and to just cover your bottom line to have leftovers. So say you have the French fries or the burger or the cookie as leftovers that you could also serve that Tuesday or, or you could serve that Thursday, say like the next day. Um, but instead of it being part of the meal, it's just served a la carte. And a lot of schools also liked that because they, they do think that the competitive food sales are helpful and it can be very helpful. It's a good source of funding for schools. But if you look at the research, actually the biggest source of funding are the meals, not the snacks. And so if you really want to increase the amount of funding that you get for your program, you want to make sure that the food is actually as appetizing and you want to increase participation as much as possible. So it was a loophole to help schools out, but I think that that was, you know, um, over 10 years ago and we're in a different place now. Um, so the capacity that schools have to serve healthier meals and make sure it's, it's more appetizing and also reduce their costs because a lot of food companies now are making healthier food. Um, and so they just don't need that kind of flexibility. And instead it's a loophole to allow them to sell unhealthier food through competitive foods. I should also say that because of COVID, it's interesting, you know, we talked about is the meal, are the meals less nutritious because of COVID? But another thing that we've seen is no more competitive foods because of COVID, because you're not in a cafeteria. So maybe you're going to the vending machine, but you're not picking a la carte items. You're just getting, you're eating whatever the school is giving you. So that's, that'll be interesting to also see our kids maybe eating, they might not be eating as well because the meal quality has diminished but maybe they're also eating better because they're not eating the cookies and french fries that compete with their meal and when they go back to school you know this year if more and more kids are going back to school in person as covid winds down as you know then maybe kids will get vaccinated once you know kids under 16 are able to get vaccinated um you know will we start having the a la carte show up again and and then do we have to worry about you know, the nutritional quality of these competitive foods again. Right. Do you think it's likely that the competitive foods will return? Absolutely, because so many schools rely on them for their sales. And, um, but just as you tried, you know, a lot of schools also have, have policies to not allow competitive foods, which is great to see. Um, or some schools just don't allow certain items. Right. All right, well, so with that, Colin, we're going to take a break. With the kids at home a lot more these days, there may be more time to have dinner together, but finding the time to plan healthy and delicious meals is still a challenge. A few months ago, I tried the dinner daily, and getting dinner on the table every night became a whole lot easier. The dinner daily isn't a meal kit, but a weekly personalized dinner planning service that sends you meal plans and an organized, grocery shopping list based on your food preferences and dietary needs. And it's the only service that uses your grocery store's weekly specials to help you save money. What I love most about the Dinner Daily are the recipes, most of which take only 30 minutes to make, and they're so easy, healthy, and delicious. My kids love their taco salad, garlic steak with feta cheese, and the carrot and parsnip mash. Not only can the Dinner Daily save you money, but you can try it free for two weeks. And right now you can get 15% off with the code HEALTH15. Just go to thedinnerdaily.com and use the code HEALTH15. And now let's get back to this week's episode of Food Issues. So in our last segment, we were talking about competitive foods and many of the USDA's proposed changes to school lunch. So We talked a little bit about this, but I'd love to talk a little bit more in depth about the fact that in January and then again in November, the USDA published proposed rules that would allow certain flexibilities around fruit at breakfast, starchy vegetables in particular. uh, And we talked about the flavored milk and whole grains and sodium. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and where you see that headed? So there have been two major attacks on school meals. And so one was rolling back the sodium reduction targets so that schools could gradually decrease the amount of salts in schools over time. And just to be clear, these are not like low salt, low sodium meals. It's actually just to get it in line with what the experts recommend or safe for kids. 
And so there was an attack to stop those reductions. There was an attack to undo the requirement to require, like, to have more whole grains in school meals. And then also, you know, flavored milk, like chocolate milk. Um, there's already like lots of non-fat chocolate milk, but this would allow low, low fat chocolate milk. Um, so that was a big attack. And we at the Center for Science, the public interest, we sued the Trump administration over it. We won in federal court um, in 2020. The federal court found that actually what the what USDA did was was illegal over procedural issues. And so they actually struck down the regulation. So what ended up happening is then um, the Trump administration at the 11th hour before they left office had to re come out with the same proposal um, and do it in a way that, you know, would pass legal muster. Um, though we do have a number of concerns about it, namely that they really gave the public like 30 days over the holidays to comment on these rollbacks. Doesn't give people a lot of time to process, even though they had already proposed it in 2018 and then reproposed it in 2020. Um, it still doesn't give a lot of stakeholders who are busy dealing with COVID uh, time to react. And and also, really, these nutrition standards are based on the dietary guidelines for Americans. And so, you know, that's a set of recommendations that advise healthy eating for all Americans that comes out every five years. And you have in 2021, the latest set of dietary guidelines for 2020 to 2025. And so the nutrition standards for school meals actually should be based on that. And so if anything, they shouldn't have rushed this rule. We hope that the Biden administration actually fixes these nutrition standards based on then the most recent dietary guidelines, which of course say you got to lower salt and you, you have to make sure that half your grains are whole and you got to limit added sugars. So that was one big attack. Then the other one, of course, is sort of like, I like to call it death by a thousand cuts, like sort of chipping away at all the other different standards that are part of school meals. So they decrease the amount of breakfast, uh, fruit that you would get in breakfast in the classroom. They would allow more French fries, so starchy vegetables in place of other vegetables like cucumbers and carrots. They would allow this huge junk food loophole to place it, take anything from the meal, like those pizza, burger, French fries, cookies, and serve it a la carte. A number of a number of things, and you know that's that's gone into place too. And so we're hopeful that just as with the sodium, whole grains, and flavored milk rollbacks, that the Biden administration fixes that too. Okay, great. And so you talked about the dietary guidelines for Americans. And if I'm not mistaken, one of the recommendations is to add more plant-based foods. And something that I've always wondered, and, and again, the nutritional committee and I here in Bethel, we had talked about this is, you know, beans are so cheap, so cheap to make. So why, <laughs> why can't those be implemented in school, in school lunch? Uh, you're right. There is a uh, a, um, I don't know if there's a vegan, but there's a vegetarian, uh, uh, even a meal pattern recommendation that the dietary guidelines has for vegetarians and, and definitely adding more plant-based foods into your diet to replace the ones that are very high in saturated fat. So obviously like replace the, the red meat with like tofu, um, if you can, and there, you know, there has actually been a really good progress in getting things like tofu and, other uh, vegan um, having vegan entrees or more plant-based food items in school meals. A lot of schools have gone to like meatless Mondays or um, have um, have vegetarian or vegan options as part of their breakfast and lunch every day. So, and, and schools, you know, they can get the same, they can have that be part of the meal and get reimbursed by the federal government, just the same. And, um, and so it's, it's been terrific to see, I think, you know, there wasn't so much tofu in schools 10 years ago and there's tons of tofu now, of right. course, I'm sure some people want to see more of it, but, and, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of parents, um, probably want more vegetarian and vegan options than their school currently provides, but it's, it pales in comparison to where we were at 10 years ago. Right. And, and also a lot of the, the vegetarian options though, I've found are potentially highly processed foods, frozen foods, packaged foods. Yeah, you gotta, of course, watch out for, you know, even if it's um, some fake cheese, 
uh, for like, you know, vegans, um, that, you know, how salty is it? How fatty is it? So, um, and you know, they might be eating certain foods, not necessarily for the health reasons, but maybe the environmental or animal welfare reasons. So everyone has sort of different factors to consider, but, but absolutely when it comes to health, you have to look at, well, even if it's, even if it's plant-based, how processed is it? Because, um, there could be plenty of sugar in it or plenty of salt. Um, it could be just as sugary or just as salty as, as something else. Um, so you can't just assume that it's healthy because it's plant-based. Right. Okay, great. So we talked a little bit about the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010 and Michelle Obama's work in that area. And, but given the proposed rules, what are your concerns as we look towards 2021? So the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act was such a big win for the public health community. And it's a monumental piece of legislation that did so much for schools. So, you know, it really set into place these updated nutrition standards that we're talking about. And it got full calorie soda and a lot of junk food out of schools. Granted, there are still lots of junk food in there, but it got so much out. And it also even expanded access to free meals. So there's, you know, more universal meals across the country because of this bill. So it, it did a tremendous amount um, uh, for kids. And re- study after study shows that its impact, again, would prevent, say, 2 million cases of childhood obesity and save over $800 million to the taxpayers and, and healthcare savings. So that's what's at risk is, you know, because of these rollbacks, we are at risk of, of just undoing that, that progress, undoing leveling the playing field for kids who come from low-income families, their access to healthy food, undoing instilling healthier eating habits and setting kids up for a healthier life um, and, you know, increasing costs to the taxpayers. And so not only do we need to undo these these attacks. And unfortunately it became so political, you know, school meals has never been as political as it's become. It was of course championed by the Obamas and you had, you know, former first lady Michelle Obama's let's move campaign to prevent childhood obesity. There was a lot of enthusiasm and it was a a big focus of the democratic party. And then when the Trump administration came in, it was literally Trump's pick for agriculture secretary, Sonny Perdue. It was his first thing that he did when he was on the job was to undo these nutrition standards. He called it make school meals great again. And it's just really unfortunate that it's been this volley of Democrats pushing for stronger policies, Republicans wanting to undo those policies because Democrats put it into place. Now that the Trump administration is out and we have Biden, you have Democrats now wanting to restore those policies. Of course, I think from a public health perspective, those policies are most beneficial to kids. And so we want to make sure that we have them in place, but they are still very much at risk. You have, because it's become so political, lots of political attacks. So I don't think that we're out of the woods yet that, you know, I'm hopeful that the Biden administration undoes the damage and also makes the nutrition standards stronger. So again, you have to address added sugars for the first time ever in school meals. You also have to actually set stronger um, sodium targets. The current ones that were in place that were rolled back actually need to be stronger um, according to the latest uh, dietary, like the the latest experts um, from the National Academy of Medicine, what they recommend are safe levels of consumption for salts for kids. So we have to undo the damage done from these past four years. We have to make them actually even stronger. And then we still have to counter constant political attacks from certain parties, certain stakeholders, certain special interests who want to just undo these better standards for kids because they think it's either too hard to do or it's something that was pushed by the Obama administration um, or kids aren't going to eat the food. Um, But there are solutions to all these problems. Right, right. Has the Biden administration given us any indication as to work that they'll do with school lunch? They've expressed support for universal meals, which is great. So we do have universal meals through the end of this school year, through you know June, the end of June of this year. But we need to extend that further. So I, I, I'm hopeful that they'll do something, or that Congress will. And I'm I'm hopeful that they'll 
make sure that if schools need to get waivers for not meeting the nutrition standards because they can't find that fruit or vegetable producer, that the schools actually have to document the hardship or the issues that they're having so that they're not just willy-nilly waving out of the nutrition standards and that they also will work to undo these regulatory rollbacks and also make it stronger for added sugars and sodium. Um, I think also what the Biden administration could do is they could even go further. They could look at summer meals also because, you know, we're talking about the school year, but then in the summer you have millions of kids who rely on school meals in the summer months. And um, those meals actually don't meet as strong of nutrition standards as the meals during the school year. And so they could also improve the meals there. Okay. What is the Center for Science and the Public Interest doing to uh, support universal school meals? So CSPI, the Center for Science and Public Interest, we, we worked with a number of members of Congress to introduce legislation that would essentially make permanent universal meals. And so we are very excited to likely reintroduce that legislation this year. And, you know, it's, it's widely supported by a number of, of, mem- of members. And uh, so we worked on that legislation with um, the House Committee Chair of, of the Education and, and Workforce, uh, Education and Labor Committee, uh, Bobby Scott from Virginia. And, uh, you know, we, we pressured the administration to extend all kinds of waivers that would allow uh, schools to provide universal meals. So we did that all throughout 2020, which sort of is what led to Congress, and a, a number of us worked on this, but led to Congress basically giving USDA the authority to extend these waivers, and then USDA did so. So we've, we've worked closely with the administration. We work with Congress. And, you know, we'll be working with the Biden administration to hopefully have them extend the waivers that allow universal meals um, past June so that, um, you know, a lot of schools are already basically do it in the summer. But then for this next school year, so this fall, you know, we have to continue providing universal meals. The economic downturn as a result of COVID isn't going to end anytime soon. And so our position is at least allow universal meals, not just through the length of the declared public health emergency, but through the length of the economic downturn. Because this is where, you know, that's the only, the best indicator that we have of um, working families struggling the most because of COVID. Right. And do you have hope that if we see a future of, of universal school meals in the, you know, well into the future, that those meals will get better from a nutritional standpoint? I would hope so because it's it would be a boon to the food industry. You have now so many more kids who are going to be participating and buying your food. And so even more of an incentive and potentially helpful for your bottom line to reformulate your foods to make them healthier and more money to the school as well to be able to do it. You know, schools don't get that much money per meal to make a healthy meal, but now they would actually get additional money since all kids are getting the meal. So that means more reimbursement for them because they get reimbursement per meal. So I, I would hope that it would lead to more, uh, to, you know, um, uh, efficiencies and, um, and increasing the nutritional quality. But the one thing that we've learned is that you have to have strong nutrition standards because it's, it's really not a floor. It's a ceiling. So when you set these standards, for instance, whole grains that say, you know, all of your, that like only half of your grains have to be whole grain rich. Well, what ends up happening and what we've seen because of these rollbacks is that schools that wanted to provide more whole grains, like whole grain biscuits, tortillas, uh, pasta, because of the rollbacks, those manufacturers now are no longer making those foods. And so when a school then actually wants to do better, they want to go and be go above and beyond the standard, they contact their local producer and the producer says, well, actually we're not making that anymore because we don't have to. So it actually becomes harder for the school to get the healthier food. It potentially becomes more expensive because those products are less available in the marketplace. And so 
we really need strong nutrition standards to make sure that schools are meeting them, but that it's also helpful for schools because that industry would meet them. And so to really ensure that meals are as nutritious as possible, you just have to have these strong nutrition standards in place. Okay, great. And so for parents listening, what can they do to uh, educate themselves and, and potentially advocate for better school meals? Well, Julie, I know that you didn't have maybe the best success at this, but <laughs> uh, I think parents actually have a lot of power. They may not think that they do, but they, they do. Their voices matter. And we, we wouldn't actually have gotten the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act in 2010 had parents not many years before been complaining about the school meals and they went to their, their school board um, or they got involved in their PTA and, um, you know, they didn't have to become full-fledged advocates. They just had to show up to a few meetings with the superintendent or the principal or talk to the food service director. And that started making some change. Um, you know, schools do listen to their communities and, and parents have a very uh, particularly influential voice. And so even at the local level, they could do a lot by just going to their school, getting involved in how can we make sure that these meals are meeting strong nutrition standards. But they could also get involved if they want to in working on state and local policies or advocating to Congress. But I would say if even if their kid doesn't participate in the school meals program, if they're not relying on breakfast and lunch every day, that they should be advocating for universal meals so that all kids get the meal for free and that the meal is as nutritious as possible. And so again, that means, you know, meeting these strong nutrition standards. And so go to your school, talk to your teachers, principals, superintendents, organize a meeting and see what the school's concerns are and see how you can resolve them. And there are lots of Lots of folks like me and my organization and other partners out there who have tons of resources and we're very willing to work with anyone who wants to improve school food at their local school. Great. And so on that same note, where can listeners go to get more information about these issues and the Center for Science and the Public Inter Interest? So you can go to our website, which is cspinet.org, and you can sign up to be on our listserv to get our email alerts. You can contact us at policy at cspinet.org, and we'll get back in touch with anyone who wants to work on this. And we have tons of resources about school meals, school food on our website. You can just search for it when you're there. And so again, that's cspinet.org. Great. Well, thank you so much, Colin, for all this information. This is a lot to chew on, and uh, we really appreciate your time being here today. You bet. Thanks for having me, Julie. Thank you. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for tuning into this episode of Food Issues. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review or share it with a friend. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter at julierevelant.com for exclusive updates and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.